Millennial Students and Book Club. My name is James Taylor. Hello, Marcus Sparks. Hi there, James Taylor. Hello, Marcus Sparks. How are you doing today? So good. Excellent. Well, uh, this week on the Neil Students and Book Club podcast, we're going to be talking about Snow Crash again, chapters six through 10. Mm. Just kind of easing into things here. There are 71 chapters, I believe, in this book. So we got a ways to go, but we're moving along. It worked out well with the chapters we picked for this time that they're kind of bookend by YT going to jail. Mm-hmm. The clink. Uh, yes. The clink instead of the who's gal. Uh, before yeah. we get into the chapter discussion, a little follow-up, which is to say we have no follow-up because we have not yet provided any way for you to get in contact with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time this episode airs, if you hit up uh, NSBC, as in Neil Students and Book Club, NSBC at headcanon.org, We'll have this in the show notes as well. Send us an email if you have any uh, feedback or, or thoughts on our discussion. And, you know, if it's not an insane rambling from a crazy person, we'll read it. Yes. It's quite a promise. Put that disclaimer in there, you know. Yeah. You know how it is. Yeah. Um, also, one other thing we failed to mention is that uh, we're <laughs> not just uh, enthusiasts of books. But we're actually writers ourselves. We have a series of books that is not at all like Neil Stevenson. Um, they're young adult murder mysteries, but uh, I think it'd be fair to say that there's at least, you know, the touch of an influence of Neil Stevenson on them, but uh, they're definitely not about cyberpunk or speculative fiction. It's about a girl detective named Trouble. Her father, Archie Valentine, is a wealthy author who dies mysteriously. She and six other heirs each receive a weird object as an heirloom that in the father's whales he says is a clue to the mystery of who killed him. Whoever solves that mystery wins his publishing fortune, which is worth about a quarter of a billion dollars. So definitely not snow crash, but if you're curious as to, you know, what we get up to in our own writing and, you know, you want to call bullshit on our critiques, definitely check it out. Go to my name is trouble.com and find all the info there. We have a third book in the series coming out later this summer. I mean, if we go back to the drawing board, I guess one of the heirlooms could have been a set of katanas. It could have, yeah. Yeah. Sure. sure. Mm. All right. Well, shall we dive into chapter six through 10? Yeah. Any uh, high level thoughts? Um, I just found these chapters to be fascinating and and fun. Just the the overview of the chapters we're going to cover. A lot of world building, Mm -hmm. a lot of backstory filling in, some setting the table. Um. I was just enamored of a lot of it. And I, I just have huge chunks where I'm just like, I have quotes from the book. I have some, some really big quotes. I don't know if we really want to read them all, but yeah, especially uh, the description of snow crash I felt was pretty key. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing, I don't know if we want to have this discussion now or if there's like a better place as we get deeper into it. And of course, who better to have this discussion than a couple of white guys, but just the depiction of race in cyberpunk in general and snow crash in particular and like different ethnic cultures. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say that this is, you know, written in 1992, definitely of the time. So Mm. like me reading it now, there's certain stuff where I'm like, Ooh, are you supposed to say that? And it's like, I don't even know if it's necessarily bad. It's just like, we don't talk about race the same way now or different, you know, like ethnicities or cultures now as we did in the nineties, I was back in the like kind of, uh, melting pot versus mixed salad debates is kind of mm. like where the discourse was. Discourse is I mean, much different now. Coming, this is this is a book coming out of the eighties that was, you know, America was fucking obsessed with the Japanese in in good and bad ways. And I mean, I, I guess my perspective, I'm not a I'm not a hacker, mm-hmm. I'm not a computer guy, I'm not an anime guy, but I've known those people and I've dip my toe in parts of that pool. It seems like it's a lot of stringy pale white guys who are obsessed with Asian people. Well, so this, that in particular is sort of fascinating to me because the long, long ago, 21 years ago, to be specific, uh, mm-hmm. I was taking a race on screen class at UC Santa Cruz, a college so liberal, we didn't have grades. And at the time, I remember we had a whole discussion of, of cyberpunk and cyberspace in general, as is mm-hmm. depicted in media and it was kind of championed at the time as being, um, I don't say race agnostic, but like multicultural. Like mm-hmm. in cyberspace, like Caucasian is not the default. Like the default is 
like an international multicultural, you know, space where whiteness is like aestheticized and othered. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time this was like kind of celebrated as like, Hey, this is like a new medium where it's not just all about white people. It's, you know, it's like this is global thing that the internet's bringing us all together. And, you know, whiteness is just one of many different things uh, that all gets kind of put into the stew. Mm -hmm. And now, and like, that was, that was a good thing, of course. Now, like I just kind of went on a brief Google safari of like what the current discourse about cyberpunk is. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of like, uh, putting in quotes here, techno orientalism and you know, how, how to move beyond like race and cyberpunk and stuff like that. Um, it's a very different flavor now, mm. um, which is honestly a little weird to read. Like a lot of the essays I'm seeing are like, they're describing cyberpunk as like a fear of like uh, sinophobia, like a fear of Asian culture, mm-hmm. which is strange because like the Japanese invented cyberpunk. Yeah. And so it's like, I guess you could say somewhere along the way that aesthetic maybe got appropriated by white people it's not it's shocker like, it, yeah but i mean <laughs> shocker it's 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 like a rock and roll is them appropriating shit i mean i i'm sure that there are plenty of japanese people who are like no it's still ours you know so i don't know how one determines that like if you live in america and you consume mostly western stuff then you can probably make that case um but it's, mm-hmm. it's very weird to see the same stuff that was championed 20 years ago is now considered a bad thing so you know do with that what you will this is, of course, a book written by a white guy featuring mostly non-white characters. Yeah. And not just a white guy. A uh, guy who shaves his head and has a crazy goatee. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like that that should be added to the I've, I've always said you shouldn't trust a dude with more hair on his face than on his head. And Neil Stevenson's my like, exception to the rule. But, you know, you okay. know. Okay. All right. So uh, reflections from the first five chapters, these five chapters. I like I said, I think I mentioned this last week or some variation of it. I had this headcanon that like the first couple chapters of this book, he wasn't really intending to write a book. I think he was just he was doing that thing where it's like he's home alone, he's got some crazy music playing, he's wearing a bathrobe, just a bathrobe, and he's sitting in his chair where like the bathrobe is not between him and the chair. Like a bathrobe or a kimono. Maybe a kimono. (laughs) But I mean, like he's got like balls and taint stuck to the chair. He's drinking there. Absolutely. Okay. And he's just like fucking just shitting out or he's, he's like <laughs> trying to shock himself, having a good time. I feel like chapter six through 10, it's like he's settled into, oh yeah, this is a real book. Like I'm writing a book. So let's back These up a little bit and give us some backstory. Yeah. yeah. Like it just, it feels like we're getting a lot of, of the building and it's very interesting. It'll be very useful, but I don't know. Again, I, I think this book is obviously in conversation and making fun of a lot of the tropes of, of the cyberpunk, but like, it's also, a book where I, I blissfully, I don't think you have need to read Neuromancer, you know? Probably not. No. I mean, I think if, if most people, I don't know, I have, like younger people, they might not kind of have the same cultural touchstones and whatnot. You know, I mean, even after this book was written, we had like hackers, you know, remember that? <laughs> that, that was actually what my race on screen class was discussing was that, that movie and, and kind of the broader implications of cyberspace as a, a welcoming place for all cultures, as we all know it is. That's uh, funny. So I, I don't think it's actually in the movie. I've never seen more than like two minutes of that movie. Shocker. Hacked plan. But, like, but whenever someone says the movie Hackers, in my mind, just the opening riff of... of uh, Connection. Uh, the fuck, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By Elastica. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's in the movie. It's definitely in the trailer. <laughs> I believe it's in the movie. A lot of rollerblading. Yeah. I gotta bring that back. Isn't there like a breeder song that starts with a modem too? Uh, Isn't like so. that radio hit from the yeah, 90s? Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Cannonball. <sighs> Cannonball. Um, but yeah, so like just, you know, as a disclaimer, warning, whatever, like if you're reading this book, there's going to be a lot of just like casual cultural stereotyping between the different cultures. Um, well, at the same time, it does like... It you know they'll be kind of like oh Japanese people are like this but then there's also Japanese characters who are not like that at all so it's not like it's it, I feel like it's attempting to portray kind of what the social attitudes in this world would be but some people might not care for that so you know your mileage may vary on on how much you enjoy that yeah I mean by all means to like feel free if if we've missed something you know feel free to point it out to us because 
we are definitely two white guys who sometimes miss our privilege or miss the sensitive issues that we should. Especially yeah, in a book celebrating a, a, another white guy, you know. That brief little Google Safari did it really made me wonder if, like, in thirty years from now, people are going to be talking about hip hop as this like phobia of urban culture that's been appropriated by white people entirely, or something like that. You know, like mm-hmm. it's weird to, to read people saying that like cyberpunk, which is invented by the Japanese, is like a phobia of Japanese people. Mm. But, I mean, it's definitely. But I mean, that's definitely the, the most operandi of white people is something is mm-hmm. they, they come in, they colonize, they erase. We don't, we don't think about black people at all, or, or we do, obviously. But I mean, I think popular culture would not have you think about the African-American roots of sure. rock and roll. Anyway, so I feel like hopefully it won't be a podcast where we constantly have to. I mean, I, I, I should say I don't want to be a podcast where we're pro- constantly just being like well that was problematic that was problematic because it's like this was written 30 years ago man it's like it's of the time like i don't feel like it's particularly interesting or novel or like uh i don't know intellectual to point out that like oh wow this is not uh you know germane to the current time you know it's like no shit but you know certain things obviously do require pointing out let's get into chapter six dial 1-800 the cops all major credit cards. <laughs> yeah, so so picking up for last time, YT's stuck in white columns. Uh, find out more about how the Burbclave uses Metacops as their official peacekeeping force. This is really just like the libertarian dystopia, you know, where it's like you have to pay for the cops yeah. like, directly with your credit card. Yeah, franchise nations prefer to have their own security. We find out Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong does it typically the, the typically Hong Kong way with robots. We get a lot. I, I highlight a lot of these. We get a lot of, I guess these are franchise nations. Mm-hmm. We have New South Africa, which is like a bunch of racists because, mm-hmm. you know, it's presumably like, I don't know, the white people got kicked out of real South Africa and started their own like white supremacist bird clay or whatever um there's of course they would do it in america metazania which i believe is supposed to be like a, a black or like african um franchise there's nova cecilia which is this is the one i was wondering about like so we know that like the mafia has their like pizza franchises right mm-hmm. do they mm-hmm. also have a bird clave it's i i would presume that's where uncle enzo lives i guess so yeah um there's narco columbia she <laughs> guess what that is uh mr lee's that joke is not even subtle yeah mr lee's greater hong kong which i think we get like a bunch of disclaimers later that says this is not actually hong kong this is just like a kind of like a mcdonald's version of mm-hmm. hong kong or something you know this is of course before um the handover from the british to china so it's mm-hmm. kind of like that style hong kong i guess you'd say Mm-hmm. Um, there's the Dixie Traditionals, another white supremacist, I'd assume. Pickett's Plantation, more white supremacists. Rainbow Heights for black people and other people of color. Um, Meadowvale on the insert name of the uh, river and a Brickyard Station. I don't know what Brickyard Station is, but it's like some of these just sound like kind of generic suburbs and others are more obviously like ethnically focused. For some reason, I was just thinking of that. Uh, I don't know why that that Amazon Lord of the Rings show, or like I just imagine a world where Amazon gets the rights to Snow Crash, but they don't get the rights to the story in the book. Mm-hmm. They get the rights to the world, so it's just like, oh, this book, this show's gonna be set in Brickyard Station. Mm-hmm. Let's explore them. Um, so yeah, so the Metacops competitors we find out are World Beat and the Enforcers. The Enforcers, I assume, are just like your your uh, uh, oh god, what Blackwater. is that fucking? Blackwater, thank you. Yeah, um, they're they're under their uniform. The rumors they all wear a T-shirt with the unofficial slogan, which is a fist holding a nightstick, emblazoned with the words "Sue me." I wonder if that's sort of a reference to the kind of thing with the Punisher shirts that some cops supposedly wear under yeah. their uniform. I I I literally just wrote my notes that uh, a few years later, it's going to be a fucking Punisher logo with a swastika. Uh, just a reminder: if you're a fucking like like cop. We can all guess why you have a Punisher thing somewhere in your uniform, but like canonically, the Punisher, which is the stupidest fucking comic book character, hates cops. Yeah, somehow that escapes their their notice. I like but, this uh, uh, this line about Narcolumbia here. It says Narcolumbia doesn't need security because people are uh, scared just to drive past a franchise at less than hundred miles an hour. So YT all snags a nifty power boost and neighborhoods thick with Narcolumbia consulates. Uh, but your point about the the Hong Kong switchover just leads me to believe that this is this kind of goes to our theory from last week that this has got to be like an, an alternate 
1992. I think so. Yeah, because we we yeah. do get some dates later on about Hero's father and like how old he was when he's mm. in the military, that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. So if you're trying to say like 2020 anything, mm-hmm. that doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, and get a description of these bird clays. They're, they're city states. They're so small, so insecure that just about everything, like not mowing your lawn or playing your stereo too loud, becomes a national security issue. <laughs> so that's why the the meta cops or what are the other non Enforcer ones, the world, world beat, world, yeah, yeah, world beat, <laughs> just like Renacops, basically, yeah. But it's like, like, it's, but like, they have authority just because they kind of do. Like, there's no real, like, every Burbclave has its own government, kind of, and but kind of predicting the like utter militarization of the police, somewhat, but also like the kind of like complete, like, um, ineffectual. Yeah, like uh, actual, you know, job oh, and the that corrupt- the police do. Yeah, and the, the corruptness. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, uh, uh, YT's just needs a, a a sticker on her her board that just says A cab. Um, <laughs> Jack this barrier to commerce, man. I've got deliveries to make. Yeah, so she's rolling up to the gate to leave White Columns. It's not letting her out. So the Medicops have a loogie gun. They are goo firing snipers, as she puts it. Some they sort of like her. I don't know, like Spider Man web shit that basically yeah. like like sticks her to the the gate that she's holding on to so she can't get away uh yeah so she's she's stuck there as they approach her do you have the medicops uh long thing to her uh i can read it here it's a you are hereby warned that any movement on your part not explicitly endorsed by verbal authorization on my part may pose a direct physical risk to you as well as consequential psychological and possibly depending on your personal belief system spiritual risks uh, ensuing from your personal reaction to said physical risk any movement on your part constitutes an implicit and irrevocable acceptance of such risk, the first yeah. Medicop says. There's a little speaker on his belt simultaneously translating all this into Spanish and Japanese. And the other Medicop says, or as we used to say, freeze, sucker. Yeah. It's, man, it's, it's scary how, like, not completely um, implausible a lot of this is. You know, it's like, it's like idiocracy, but, like, kind of darker and meaner, I guess you'd mm-hmm. say. So they've scanned by T. They recognize her as committing thrasher offenses in other neighborhoods as well. She points out that those are basically other countries. And they counter that because of treaties between the neighborhoods, they, the Medicops, are authorized to enforce busting her ass. Um, and so the other one cop keeps speaking like legally is why the other translates it into like full pig for her. your ass is busted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So by columns is like burp clays, but with no jail, uh, you know, because think of the property values. Think of the liability exposure. So the Medicops are just this sort of roving like organization without their own property, seemingly that they just go around, you know, enforcing these various treaties and rules of these burp claves. And then yep. they take them to one of two jail systems, either the clink or the Huskow. Uh, I like there's this description uh, about the Medicops. Um, it says motorists around them drive slowly, insanely appalled by the thought of having to pull over and listen to a half hour of disclaimers, advertisements, and tangled justifications from the likes of these. The occasional Cosa Nostra delivery boy whips past them in the left lane, orange lights a flame, and they pretend not to notice. So the cops don't mess with the the mafia, you know. The, the, I laughed so hard at the uh, they ask her does she want to go to the Huskow or the Clink and she's like the Huskow and the one cop's like the Clink yeah. <laughs> we get the impression that the, the Huskow is the uh, easier to stomach mm-hmm. yeah um, so she keeps referring to herself in the third person it's so the one cop of course only hears that as Whitey the other's guessing her name is it Yolanda Truman is it Yvonne Thomas and she tells us that it actually stands for you, yours truly but if they can't figure that out fuck them I love that she says to them, that's what YT is called, YT says. <laughs> um, and then uh, she's like, I don't have to officially get off. You could, I could just escape. And he says, this is a class unit. We don't support escapes. And so like, you get the idea that like this is like a service that they may provide for a certain amount of money. You know, It's like, well, you can escape. It's like GTA or something. You just got to pay us this much money and you get away. So, so they negotiate it. They want a trillion bucks. She counters with half a trillion. Their final offer is $750 billion. And at that point, since she has the goo on her hands, she's in no position to negotiate. And so she just like gets her credit card out of her coverall and uh, swipes it through the slot in the front seat. And uh, she's good. So this wasn't to get away. This was to for them to take her to the Huskow instead of the clink. Yeah. That's the best so they could I, do. I think it tells you a lot about the uh, the value of whatever the equivalent of the dollar is. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's been a mention of hyperinflation at some point before this, but yeah, yeah obviously the, the dollar has collapsed. Yeah. So the Hooskow has a sign outside that says premium, premium incarceration restraint services. We welcome busloads. Yes. <laughs> and I like how they describe the check encounter as faux rustic. The employees all wear cowboy hats and five pointed stars with their names and boss on them. And like in the back is there's like a hokey old fashioned iron bars. Like it's, it's like this cheesy Western jail, like as though it's, it's like, like a like Vegas jail. Yeah, it's like Vegas jail or something. Yeah, it's like all completely fake. It's just like um, a franchise. There's other cop cars there, including the enforcers, we're told. Uh that the enforcers are to the meta cops with the Delta Forces of the Peace Corps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the so, Hooskow is full up, so they gotta go to the clink, and YT is not pleased by this. Yeah. Uh yes. <laughs> The description of the guy scans her barcode. Hundreds of pages come up about her. He replies, huh, female. And there's this great description from Stevenson about how the two metacops look at each other like, Psh, this guy's a genius. He can never be a metacop. <laughs> there's a mention of a customer at one of the buying flies they go to who's wearing a New South Africa baseball cap with a Confederate flag uh, in case he hadn't got who exactly they are. Um, yeah. And there's also, I think this is, we've seen this mentioned before three ring binder there's like this thing where like all the franchises are run by like these three ring binders of like kind of like the employee handbook slash rules and mm. so like if you want to know who the manager of franchise is just look to the guy with his binder that tells him what to do for any particular situation it's it's very much kind of in that this is the era where everything's getting very corporatized and like mass produced you know so it's like there's it's it's not like a personal touch anymore. Everyone's just got a binder they refer to for everything. I don't know why but the moment that came to me was, do you remember the the first the, the opening scene of Sneakers when they're able to right, get into yeah. the bank because that that one guard, yeah. Uh there was a ride at the Snooze and Cruise which uh the narco-Colombians were dealing a bad batch and so that's why the enforcers have so many uh, occupants. So YT says she's going to sue cuz she paid to be taken to the Huskow. And she says, I work for Radicus, we protect our own. He's like, not tonight, you don't. Tonight you took a pizza from a scene of a car wreck, you know, left the scene of an accident. Radicus doesn't tell you to deliver pizza. And so YT's like, ah, he's right. She can't really do anything about it. Yeah. So inside the clink, they need to take her armor. She unzips to show that she's wearing, like not wearing anything underneath. So they freak out. Well, let me, let me just read you some of this here. Yeah. Um, so the courier has to establish space on the pavement. Predictable law-abiding behavior lulls drivers. They mentally assign you to a little box in the lane. Assume you'll stay there. Can't handle it when you leave that little box. YT is not fond of boxes. YT establishes her own space on the pavement by zagging mightily from lane to lane, establishing a precedent of scary randomness. Keeps people on their toes, makes them react to her instead of the other way around. Now these men are trying to put her in a box, make her follow rules. She unzips her coverall all the way down to her navel. Underneath is not but billowing pill flesh. So she's like daring them. He's like, they're all kind of staring at her like maybe they're going to do something to her. And she's like, basically, fuck you. I, I dare you. Uh, she mentions she's not afraid because she's wearing a dentata. We'll find second out mention. what that is later. Yeah. Yeah. Second mentions Chekhov's dentata. But I think we can go ahead and say it's designed to protect you from sexual assault. Mm hmm. And we'll see how later. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a mention that one of the employees from the clink is uh, from Tajikistan, otherwise mm -hmm. called a jeek, and she's taken into the clink. Seems like it might be a slur. Yeah, but we're going to get a lot of throwing of jeek around later. There, there's a lot of like, I, I don't know, is Tajikistan even a real nation? I don't believe so. I don't, yeah, but it's like, these are sort of invented slurs, I guess you could say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could argue it's like you know, some writers invent nations so they can invent slurs about mm -hmm. them. I feel like he's kind of uh, uh, parroting a certain type of perception of culture. I don't know. Um, but chapter seven, we're back and we're, we're heading inside the Black Sun finally. Uh, well, we should say sun. how that how that goes with her unzipping her uh, coverall there, which I think there's at some point a description of like all the little weird pockets and all the shit she has in her coverall, but she unzips it. Like basically I dare you. And then the manager's like, Oh no, no, no. You know, he's like, like intimidated by her like forwardness. Yeah. Although still. Well, we'll, we'll come back to him. Yeah. Yeah. But at chapter seven, we're inside the black sun. It's the size of several football fields put together. It has square tables throughout that just hover in the air with no legs. Everything is matte black, which makes it easier for the computer to draw. Unlike the street, no one is allowed to collide here. It's a classier joint. So that means no talking penises. Yeah. And there is kind of like um, like a temporal disconnect here because all this stuff that's happening in the Black Sun is like 
a few weeks later, whereas the stuff with YT is all happening like that first night with Hero delivering the pizza. Yeah. Though interesting, like it's not specifically spelled out within the text. I mean, we'll find no. this out, but uh, so they're they're demons, avatars that don't represent people. They're basically little robot bits of AI code. And the Black Sun has several demons that serve drinks and run errands for people. There's also bouncer demons that toss undesirables out. And uh, Dave, David has fucked with the physics in here to make it so cartoonish. So you can be hit over the head of a mallet before your avatar is tossed out, or you can literally have a safe dropped on your head. Yes. I like the detail. Hero has a, uh, a program called Big Board that he runs inside Black Sun that just tells him like who's there, like everyone who's everyone whose avatar is present, like who they're talking to. It's all completely unauthorized data he's not supposed yeah. to have. But as he describes himself, Hero is not some bimbo actor coming here to network. He's a hacker. If he wants information, he steals it right out of the guts of the system. Gossip ex machina. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a mention of Sovereigns. There's another piece of the world building here we don't really hear much about them yet but that will come up later um i think we can just assume from the word that this is someone who is sovereign what's fascinating me is is like how has no one else thought of the big board well i mean it's like how is this hero's innovation i guess he wrote it like and nobody else would have access to it i mean now like this is like in a different time when like privacy online was thought of differently i suppose you know but I mean, you would think that other people would want something like this. Well, that would be Black Sun's whole business now would be mm-hmm. selling data about who's there and who they're talking to and what they're talking yeah. about, you know, yeah. whereas like this is like a side hustle for Hero. Yeah. So there's quadrants in the club. Uh, there's a hacker quadrant, a movie star quadrant, a rock star quadrant and the Nipponese quadrant, uh, which looked like other quadrants that it was quieter. The tables are closer to the floor and it's full of bowing and fluttering geisha demons. Very stereotypical, yeah. We get the mention yeah. of a Nipponese rap star named Sushi K, who mm-hmm. is, I feel like his whole character exists to kind of make a joke about Japanese people and probably just other cultures in particular trying to create rap and yeah. like how it's it's like how it's like super corny, basically. Well, and there's a mention later that he's he's, he's physically in Los Angeles at, the, at that moment, mm-hmm. but he doesn't realize is that the the white people will never accept his music well, americans um, will never accept yeah. his music yeah yeah uh so as as hero approaches david he sees that he's talking to one of those like uh, black and white female avatars or the black and white kind of cheaper avatars um whom he recognizes immediately from the body language it's juanita marquez Ooh. yeah there's a great line here it says here's avatar stops moving and stares at her adopting just the same facial expression with which he used to stare at this woman years ago in reality he reaches out with one hand picks up his beer takes a pull on the bottle and lets it roll around in his mouth, a bundle of waves clashing inside a small space, which like you just really get the imagery there. Like this dude seeing this woman just being like, I need to take a sip. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They were freshmen at Berkeley together in the same lab section of the physics class. Uh, He had the same impression of her for a while, dour, bookish and geeky, Uh, just like she was interviewing for a job as an accountant to a funeral parlor, but with a (laughs) flamethrower tongue. Yeah. And she was the face department at uh, Black Sun back when the metaverse was young. Nobody, yeah. nobody else thought faces were important. Uh, they're just flesh tone busts on top of avatars. She was in the process of proving them all desperately wrong. Uh, but at this stage, the all male society of bitheads that made up the power structure of Black Sun systems said that the face problem was trivial and superficial. It was, of course, nothing more than sexism, the especially virulent type espoused by male techies who sincerely believe they are too smart to be sexist. And man, does that still hit the, the needle like just perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Um, here tells us he wasn't like prepared to get her when he was first met her. He was a 17-year-old army brat who only knew two, knew two things, samurai movies and the Macintosh. And he knew them so well that there was no room to know anything else. Hmm. Uh, we find out more about Hero's dad. He was in World War II in 1944. Spent time as a prisoner of war. He was 16 then, so. Yeah. Uh, Hero was born to him and his dad was like late middle age. Uh, stayed in the military because he didn't know what to do with himself and they forced him to retire in the 1980s. Uh, the point that Hero had gotten to Berkeley, he had been all over the country as an army brat. Uh, it's interesting that he describes the military brat culture not dissimilarly from any other like subgroup in the book, like hackers. Like they're not this or that. They're just... But he describes them as like being group. like a, a, a one people. Yeah. Like no matter what your ethnicity was, military people or like the military brats are all the same kind of. Yeah. 
Um, so by the time he first saw Juanita, she was like no other girl. She had long, black, glossy hair that had been subjected to no other chemicals other than shampoo. Her clothing was dark, tailored, and restrained. She took shit from no one, including professors, which seemed shrewish and threatened to him at the same time. Yeah, I like that line. Uh, when he saw her again after an absence of several years, a period spent mostly in Japan working among real grown-ups from a higher social class than he was used to. People of substance who wore real clothes and did real things with their lives. He was startled to realize that Juanita was an elegant, stylish knockout. So it's kind of recalling about how like he used to be just a real fucking know-it-all tech bro dipshit. Uh, when he first met her, but then kind of when he reconnected with her later, he realized, oh, she's super hot and maybe I suck. Basically, she hadn't changed much, just kind of grew into herself. It was he who had changed radically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, her office had, was a, had an amateur painting of an old woman in a chair, who turned out to be her grandmother, while the other hackers had pictures of space shuttles taking off or the Starship Enterprise on their walls. I love this line where she says, it's my late grandmother. May God have mercy on her soul. She said, watching him look at the painting, my role model. And he says, why? Was she a programmer? <laughs> and she's kissing this look like, how slow can you be and still breathe? Yeah. Um, she tells him this story about her grandmother, how Juanita had a pregnancy scare at 15, despite tracking her cycle. She was freaking out. She dumped her boyfriend immediately because he seemed like such an alien, like most, most specimens of the male species. And her grandmother came to visit and figured out what was going on in like 10 minutes, basically condensing fact from the vapor of nuance and that's and hearing that story in that line that's when Hero realized how smart Juanita was well and then that her grandmother realized this entirely from watching Juanita like she hadn't said more than 10 words through the whole you know 10 minutes there and yet somehow she just could tell from her face and so that's Juanita's specialty is facial expressions in the metaverse and how they're so much more important than verbal communication and I, I feel like I hate to say it, it seems like it would be a really gendered thing. I get the impression that a lot of male tech people, you know, don't know what to do with the the part of your body above your shoulders that shows, I don't know, other people's humanity. Well, it is reading about, interesting reading about this creation of the metaverse here, because obviously in the real world right now, uh, you know, the company Meta is obsessed with the metaverse and... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's going to be the um, the discourse, it seems like, for the next few years about, you know, the, the future of the Internet. Hmm. And this has all been thought about 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, it really helped her, it helped one of the years later when she was working for a project with the Department of Defense. She realized that the human brain can, comp- can process so many complex things if you put a face on them. Um, and so she's talking about it here was wondering if he was an asshole back in college and if he left her with a bad impression of him, which is basically going to be the defining question of hero's life and his, his relationship to Juanita from years to come. Yeah. This is all back when he'd started working at black sun. She worked there too. And they kind of like reconnected after several years apart. And so he asked her out to drinks and after a couple, you know, quick questions, he just says, Hey, do you think I'm an asshole? He did not realize that until a couple of years later, that question was in effect, the cornerstone of their relationship. Yeah. Uh, they had a relationship, they had great sex conversations, some wildness. Eventually it fell apart because hero couldn't handle how much he wondered if she thought he was an asshole and started to think that, it, or she started to think that it was, that he was so sure that he wasn't worthy of her that he must've been on to something. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he knew something she didn't. Um, so he wanted to think it was a class thing, but her parents live in a house in Mexicali with a dirt floor and his dad made more money than most college professors. Um, and he had spent years wondering if he was, you know, black or Asian or just army. Um, so after Juanita, he dated a series of bimbos, most of whom were impressed that he worked for a Silicon Valley firm. And lately, he had to go searching for women who were even easier to impress. <laughs> uh, we get some uh, mentions of David here. David, I don't know how you want to talk about them. Uh, but Juanita started uh, dating David and eventually got married to him. David had no doubts whatsoever about his staying in the world. His folks were Russian Jews from Brooklyn and had lived in the same brownstone for 70 years after coming from a village in Latvia where they had lived for 500 years. With a Torah on his lap, he could trace his bloodlines all the way back to Adam and Eve. David has always been certain of everything. Yeah, got his computer science degree, started his company of relative ease, and now he's rich and everything comes easy to him. Um, so something happened and eventually Hero quit his job at Black Sun Systems despite the promise of future riches and uh, Juanita divorced David two years after marrying him. Uh, Hero didn't attend the wedding because he'd been thrown in jail a few hours before the rehearsal. 
Um, I, I, I just, there's like whole passages. I just want to read because they're so fun. Yeah. This whole thing about him, like drinking from bottle of Corvusser and like practicing like kendo attacks with the samurai sword in golden gate park until he got arrested. Like who hasn't had a little crevassier and uh, some swords mm-hmm. and you're just scaring the fuck out of tourists. <laughs> um, so since then, Hero has not asked Juanita if she thinks he's an asshole because now he knows the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the early years of the Black Sun Project, the only way hackers ever got paid was by issuing stock to themselves. Hero tended to sell his off almost as quickly as he got it. Juanita didn't. Now she's rich and he isn't. Uh, but I do love, there's a great little passage here. It says, when Hero's father died, he cashed in all of his Black Sun stock to put his mom in a nice community in Korea. She loves it there. Goes golfing every day. He could have kept his money in Black Sun and made $10 million about a year later when it went public, but his mother would have been a street person. So when his mother visits him in the metaverse looking tan and happy in her golfing duds, Hero views that as his personal fortune. It won't pay the rent, but that's okay. When you live in a shithole, there's always a metaverse. And in the metaverse, Hero protagonist is a warrior prince. I mean, so it really tells us like his priorities. And he's got his like tragic backstory. Because he, he, stress, he stresses that at the beginning with whoa, 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 it's not just a story that she's a smart investor and I'm a stupid investor. Well, he's also, he doesn't seem to look too far ahead. He just like, there's immediate needs that he focuses on. You know, he's not really playing the long game at all. What I find interesting though is we take the meaning of the joke between Whitey and the cops in the previous chapter. But here, I think we read very genuinely, he could have made $10 million a year later. But with inflation... You know, well, like how much is that? I, I assume when he says that, we're supposed to think of it as like real money, and not, right, right, right. We're, we're thinking yeah. of it like we're in the '90s, and this yeah. is this is a big deal, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so chapter eight, he's surprised that she's in the black and white avatar. Um, she was, which I, I kind of, I kind of picture as just like the take on me. Yeah, figure. yeah, I can't see that. It says that she was the one who figured out a way to make Avatar show something close to real motion. Uh, that yeah. is a fact. Hero has never forgotten because she did. Most of her work when they were together and whenever an avatar looks surprised or angry or passionate in the metaverse, he sees an echo of himself or Juanita, the Adam and Eve of the metaverse makes it hard to forget. So I find that very interesting is that like him and her are the basis of like all the like emotional expressions of every avatar in the metaverse. So matrix terms, it's like he's the architect and she's the Oracle. (sighs) (laughs) Uh, So the black sun took off right after David and Juanita's divorce, and a huge chunk of that work is because of her her work on facial expressions. Just as the folks, uh, you know, who come in from the Nipponese quadrant, they come here to rub elbows with business people from all over the world, but they consider it as good as a face to face. Well, it's in like fact, it's it's as though all these techies, like they design the metaverse and all the stuff with the street and and all that, but like the reason it's successful is not because of that, but because of the facial uh, like emotional features that she created. Like she's responsible for like the the kind of killer app. Here's the thing. You can't you can't just map this kind of thing onto your life now in 2022. But like, wouldn't you almost I mean, isn't it kind of refreshing to think like this could have been the culture that we've been in for decades? I don't know. Like I mean in, every in a quaint way. It is, but like also like every tech dude has read this book and is now yeah. trying to make it. You know, like Zuckerberg has obviously read this book. So we'll see. I wonder if they've read this part of it recently and like are, are noting this part or if they're just looking to throw a bunch of ads at you in the metaverse. I just somehow don't envision Mark Zuckerberg is really good with faces. faces. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at his haircut. Yeah. I mean, again, he looks like a, like a broken data robot. Um, in fact, so some of the Nipponese people ignore what is being said and focus just on the facial expressions and the body language to get to the real dirt, uh, basically pulling meaning from that vapor of nuance. Um, Juanita refused to examine it while she was working for the company, you know, and consider it an ineffable, natural human thing. And so the, the basically men, you know, opposing voices that. So it was, it, that was a rational mysticism. So she got enough shit that she quit Black Sun, went to work for a Nipponese company. They didn't mind a rational mysticism as long as it made them money. Yeah, I find out she never comes to Black Sun anymore, partly because she's pissed at David and the other hackers never appreciated her. Uh, but also she's decided that the whole thing is bogus, that no matter how good it is, the metaverse is distorting the way people talk to each other. And she wants no such distortion in her relationships. So like, even with all the work she's done, she's like, this is still essentially bogus. Although I, I do believe there's a line in some, somewhere in here where like, because the faces are all derived from her and hero, they're the only two people in the metaverse who can have a truly honest conversation with each other. Yeah. It's like, yeah. the, the, they're the only ones for 
where it, it is actually real. Yeah, I mean, it's not essentially it's not a mask. Yeah. Um, so David sees Hero and, and waves him away, letting him know this is a bad time. So Hero does an orbit around the bar, which is full of industry types. He listens to to one group talking about a story conference they had of directed at their beach house. A story involves this director wanting to substitute the scene involving something of a guy like looking at a dumpster with bazookas in the in the desert. So Hero, this is how Hero works. He takes a snapshot of the big board, figures out who the screenwriter is, will figure out who they're working for, the mystery director of the fetish for bazookas. Since he's recorded the audio via his computer, he'll like change the voices and like modulate them, upload it to the CIC library. Other screenwriters will listen to the audio, memorize it, and then pay Hero where they go and write bazooka-heavy scripts to flood the director's office with. Yeah, so that's how he'll get paid is from that intel. It- it seems bananas that this would work as a recurring way of making money. Yeah. He mentions uh, there's a movie star quadrant. Actors like to come here because they can strut their stuff and visit their friends without any exposure to kidnappers, paparazzi, script flingers, assassins, ex-spouses, autograph brokers, processors, psycho fans, marriage proposals, or gossip columnists. And this, I think, that sentence right there is a classic like Neil Stevensism like example, the way he writes. He loves to hit you with lists. And he loves yeah. within those lists. He doesn't really do as much here, but he loves to hit you with a couple uh, like outliers, a few like one of these is not like the others. Like yeah. he he like he really plays with comedy that way, where like he'll just like put something really absurd in the middle of one of these lists. Well, yeah, I mean he he, he likes a joke structure that's where you think it's going to be. Oh, so and so did A, B, and C, and he's mm-hmm. just like A, B, C, D, E, F, Z, Q, R. Yeah. You know. Um, also, prior to that, he scans the Rockstar Quadrant. doesn't have a lot for him. The Rockstar Quadrants wear their hair like they only can in their dreams. Tonight, it's mostly parasites and has-beens. None of Hero's friends, who are all will-bees and wannabes. We get a brief mention of L. Bob Rife. That will be a yep. character who's a bigger part of the story later. He's a cable television monopolist. Yeah. Uh, just a thoroughly evil person. Uh, so we get the Nipponese Quadrant. It's a lot of guys in suits. Uh I was just thinking to myself, imagine there's this, the same decade, Neil Stevenson sitting down to write this book. Meanwhile, Michael Crichton's writing Rising Sun. <laughs> that was before this, I think, actually, right? Didn't that come out in like, like 91, maybe? Or no, wait, maybe that was 93. I can't remember. No, but. I mean, it's either a little bit before or mm. a little bit after, but I mean, it's the yeah. same fucking post 80s thing. Yeah. Well, I, I really do feel like this book, even with its kind of, you know, hewing to certain like culture cliches, is like a celebration of that culture. Whereas rising sun is very much like, Oh my God, scary Japanese people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Juanita shows up to talk to hero. They flirt a little bit, which tells them that something is up. And she says, I hope you're not going to mess around a snow crash. She says, David won't listen to me. And he's like, what am I a model of self-restraint? I'm exactly the kind of guy who would mess around with it. I like this line in college. He used to think that she was afraid of his intellect, but he's known for years that this is the last thing of her worries. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, says, she, sorry, go ahead. I was like, she points out that he won't fuck around up things that, because he has his sword fighting reflexes. And um, he also wrote the software. Yeah. She's generally nice to him about their former relationship. Mentions back when uh, she was writing all of this, she knew that he was the only person in the real conversation. Uh, and he says, you're just the same mystical crank you always were. And like he smiles as if to make this seem like it was a charming statement. Yeah. I like this line. At this late date, at, at this late, late date in his romantic career, he is just canny enough to come up with a new theory. She's being careful because she likes him. She likes him in spite of herself. He is exactly the kind of tempting but utterly wrong romantic choice that a smart girl like Juanita must learn to avoid. She and wants asks, to meet this. No, go on. I say he asks her later what her type is, and she says, "Old, rich, unimaginative blondes with steady careers." He says, "This one almost slips by him." Then he catches it. Well, I could dye my hair, and I'll get old eventually. And she laughs, <laughs> at it. So there's so there's some flirtation going on, you know, old yeah. flames here. That uh, maybe there's a temptation to reconnect, even though Juanita knows better, or at least that's mm. what he assumes. Uh, she wants him to meet this guy she knows named Logos. Uh, he teases her and asks if this is her boyfriend. And again, that's the thing about the uh, mm-hmm. what 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 kind of her kind of guy. Uh, we find out that she's using her money to start her own branch of the Catholic Church, where she'd be a missionary to the intelligent atheists of the world. Yeah, there's an interesting line here. He says, "Hey, I went to church every week in high school. I sang in the choir." And she says, "I know that's exactly the problem." 99% of everything that goes in most Christian churches has nothing whatsoever to do with the actual religion. Intelligent people all notice this sooner or later, and they conclude that the entire 100% is bullshit, which is why atheism is, atheism is connected with being intelligent in people's minds. Mm-hmm. So that's where she's coming from there. 
So she hands him a hypercard. Uh, as Hero pulls it from her hand, the hypercard changes from a jittery two-dimensional figment to a realistic cream-colored, finely textured piece of stationery. Printed across its face is the glossy black, glossy black ink is a pair of words, Babel. And underneath that, info, 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 Infocalypse. Infocalypse, yeah. Infopocalypse. Yeah. It feels like it should be Infopocalypse, right? Yeah. Fucking A, Neil Stevenson. Uh, Chapter 9. Chapter 9. I like how he he describes that um, the world freezes and grows dim for a second and the black sun loses its smooth animation because it's like his computer has taken a major hit. Like whatever she just handed him was a massive data dump. And so it's like the whole world has to like slow for a sec while while it buffers there. And she says she handed him a whole library with a librarian to boot to help him sort through it. Yeah, she wants him to take a look at it. It's all about uh, L. Bob Reif, lots of video of him. And she's, he's like, well, I'll have a look at it. And she says, do, unlike David, you're just smart enough to benefit from this. In the meantime, stay away from Raven and stay away from Snow Crash, okay? Raven. So Raven, Snow Crash. Whatever Snow Crash is, whatever that dude is offering outside, stay away from it. He asks who Raven is, but she's already on her way out the door. I wish we had like a really cool fucking sound effect every time we said Raven. Yeah. I like how he describes her walking out the door. The fancy avatars all turn around and watch her as she goes past them. The movie stars give her drop dead looks and the hackers purse their lips and stare reverently. Like she's even though she's seemingly not appreciated enough by black sun. She's like a fucking legend to the hackers. Yeah. So Uh, here goes. I just want to say like, it's interesting that hero even though he's kind of framed as this is almost like a detective story. He's like this down on his luck kind of like, you know, private enterprise type guy. And yet he has these connections to the, the highest of heights in the hacker world, you know, like he's, he was right there at the start, but now he's just like, kind of like this dirt bag, like doing his own thing. Didn't really get to enjoy any of those successes. There's an element of, this book being, or at least this portion of the book being like Casablanca, but he's not Rick. Mm-hmm. Like Rick's an asshole. Uh, it's almost like he's like Peter Lorre. <laughs> but he he <laughs> has swords. He has these connections to this higher society, even though he himself is. It's like he can he can go there and he can participate, but he's still an outsider. You know. Yeah. He, can, he walks in both worlds, like Blade. Yeah. Exactly. Like Blade. Uh, but the, the real like uh, Casablanca flash I got was he walks over to the hacker quadrant. There's David shuffling hyper cards around on the table in front of him. Yes. Um, I like David, mentions, David oh, says there's, there's a blip in the operating system that hits me right in the gut every time you come in that door. I also have premonition that Blackstone is headed for a crash. Yeah. Like that. And he's like, and here I was like, oh, it must be my big board program. And he's just like, would you please throw that thing away? <laughs> he's like, I will like give you like the hooks or whatever to rewrite it. Like, so it's not like just a complete kludge of like shitty software. Yeah. And like completely out of date is what he's basically yeah. too. And here I was like, well, it's hard. There's no place for a freelance hacker anymore. You have to have a big corporation behind you. Yeah. Uh, so David knows that and wants to help Hero. Um, and he's always wanted to help Hero ever since the conversation. Several years ago, which is when Hero got fired. Yeah, I love this. It's a conversation that started out as a friendly chat over beer and oysters between a couple of longtime comrades in arms. It was not until three quarters of the way through the conversation that it dawned on Hero that he was, in fact, being fired at this very moment. Since the yeah. conversation, David has been known to feed Hero useful bits of intel and gossip from time to time. Um, and this description, like many bitheads, David is utterly guileless. But at the times like this, he thinks he's the reincarnation of Machiavelli. Um, so we find out that David tries to throw all sorts of like gossip and shit to hero to like help him out with his like CIC job. But hero never wants to use any of it. Cause he doesn't want to like gossip about his friends basically. Well, also he considers himself to be David's equal. So he doesn't mm-hmm. like getting table scraps. Yeah. Um, David mentions he's glad to see Juanita back in the, the black sun. He says for her not to use black sun. It's like Alexander Graham Bell refusing to use the telephone. Um, yeah. we asked why she came in tonight. He says, well, something's bugging her. It's the snow crash thing that she's worried about. Um, and basically he, he's like, oh, I like, I have some, you know, it's like, he has like a hyper card. It's a snow crash, tear this card in half to release your free sample. And, um, here I was just like, David, I can't believe you took your hyper card from a black and white person. And he laughs. He says, this is not like the old days, my friend. I've got so much antiviral medicine in my system that nothing could get through. I get so much contaminated shit from all the hackers who come through here. It's like working in a plague world at Ward. Uh, so I'm not afraid of whatever's in this hypercard. Famous last words. She also asked if uh, he'd seen Raven, mm-hmm. 
which I just, again, I want some kind of like, caw, caw in the background every time we say his name. <laughs> and David's just like, I don't know, you think I should like, you know, try this shit? And here is like, yeah, go for it. It's not every day you get to try out a new drug. It's, well, like, it's, it's like, like a drug that's a computer drug. Well, he's like, actually, you can try out a new drug every day, but it's rare that you can try a drug that can't hurt you at all. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, just dig yourself deeper, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he rips the card in half and waits a moment. And we hear Avatar materialize on the table in front of David. How much Starting out, do we want to go into this? Because it's like a long description here. We'll cut it off when we need to cut it off. Yeah. Right. Starting out ghosting transparent, gradually becoming solid and three dimensional. It was really a trite effect here on David already laughing. Uh, the Avatar is a stark naked brandy. It doesn't even look like the standard brandy. This looks like the one of the cheap Taiwanese brandy knockoffs. Clearly, it's just a demon. She's holding a pair of tubes in her hands about the size of paper towel rolls. Uh, the little doll like whispers something in his ear and freezes. And he freezes. The doll unfolds a scroll and shows it to him. Here it comes around, to take a look, and it looks like just like static or snow. Snow crash. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then later, you know, like David's like, you saw the whole thing, which is a fixed pattern of black and white pixels, fairly high resolution. There's a few hundred thousand ones and zeros for me to look at. So in other words, someone exposed your optic nerve to what? Maybe a hundred thousand bytes of information. And so we it's, hear it's from, like this, this weird little brandy avatar unrolls a scroll in front of his face that only he sees. Like when Hero tries to get a look at it, it kind of goes away. Yeah. Uh, he describes it, David describes it as basically buggy code that all he could see was the code and like not whatever the effect the code, not whatever program it was supposed to they, run. They assume that some hacker created this thing and it was supposed to show him something, but the hacker screwed up. And so it yeah. just showed him a bunch of snow crash instead. And, and then the hero's like, well, that, but why is it called Snow Crash? You know, oh, it's because ironic because he knows his code doesn't work, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, he's trying to show off, like, here's my code, hire me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, what are the brandy whisper in your ear? And David says, some language I didn't recognize, just a bunch of babble, which he, makes he hero think babble. Like Tower like the, babble. That card yeah. I just got, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dave wants to show here the Nipponese rapper Sushi K, who's in the Nippon Quadrant tonight, actually in LA. Um, do we ever find out where David is actually physically located? I don't think so. Presumably some fancy house in LA. I think, I think it's like briefly mentioned later, like Juanita will mention okay. it. Yeah, but not, not for a while. Um, and then some bouncer demons come charging at Hero. He assumes it's because of the big board and asks David to call them off. Hero turns around to look at David, but David's not there anymore. Instead, uh, instead of David, there's just jittering cloud of bad digital karma. It's so bright and fast and meaningless that it hurts to look at. It flashes back and forth from color to black and white, and then it's a, then it's in color. It rolls wildly around the color wheel as though being strafed with high-powered disco lights. It's not staying within its own body space. Hair-thin pixel lines keep shooting off to one side, passing all the way across the black sun and only out through the wall. It is not so much of an organized body as a centrifugal cloud of lines and polygons whose center cannot hold, throwing bright lights of body shrapnel all over the room, interfering with people's avatars, flickering and disappointing. I mean, this is body horror shit, but like in a weird digital space it's fascinating yeah it's like his avatar just kind of breaks apart um there's a brief discussion of biomass here which is interesting it's a body of living stuff um he says if you take a an acre of rainforest or a cubic mile of ocean or square block of compton strain out all the non-living stuff dirt and water you get the biomass Mm. and david says i don't understand but his voice is funny this is like when he's just starting to break apart here um so he's essentially like his avatar starts to freak out. So the bouncer demons come and throw David out of his own club. Very embarrassing. There's a, there's a interesting moment where it's described as you get what looks like David's face for just a moment through a pile of shattered glass. Um, and then, yeah, David, David, Supreme hacker, overlord, founding father, metaverse protocol, creator and proprietor of the world famous black sun has just suffered a system crash. He's been thrown out of his own bar by his own demons. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to catch up with uh, what happens to David in the next episode. Right now, chapter 10, getting back to old YT from presumably like a few weeks prior. She uh, she knows how to shiv open a pair of handcuffs. All the couriers do know how because as a, a longtime uh, status of skateboarders, as an oppressed ethnic group, means that they <laughs> now all have to uh, be a skate artist to some degree. Do you remember the whole like skateboarding is not a crime thing yeah, way back yeah. in the day? Yeah. Yeah. So oppressed. Um. Uh, there's a long, fascinating second second paragraph of this chapter where she's describing her uniform, which has a hundred pockets, big flat pockets for delivery, and insane narrow pockets for gear. I, mean, I don't want to read the whole thing, but like mm. it's like talking about. Well, I'll, I'll read the list of what she has: lightweight pens, markers, pen lights, pen knives, lock picks, barcode scanners, flares, screwdrivers, liquid knuckles, 
bundy stunners, and light sticks. A calculator is stuck upside down to her right thigh, doubling as a taxi meter and a stopwatch. On the other thigh is a personal phone. How so much of this unlock- now would just be a phone? Yeah, seriously. Okay. Seriously. There's an app for all of this stuff. Um, so her phone rings. Um, it's her mother. I, yeah, let me read this here. It's this, the conversation she has with her mom. She says, hi, mom. Fine. How are you? I'm at Tracy's house. Yeah, we went to the metaverse. We were just fooling around at this arcade on the street. Pretty bumping. Yes, I used a nice avatar. Nah, Tracy's mom said she'd give me a ride home later, but we might stop off at the Joy Riot on Victory for a while, okay? Okay, well, sleep, t- sleep tight, mom. I will. I love you. See you later. So I, I think, I don't know if it's in this chapter or later, but we, re- we learn that she is 15 years old. So mm-hmm. YT, although she kind of fronts as this badass skateboarder, she's a 15-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. I just noticed for the first time that, and I've been struggling with it, the autocorrect on my computer keeps wanting to uh, change it to meet first. Oh, instead of metaverse. Yeah. Yeah. So she gets, yeah. So she gets off the the call of her mom, calls another uh, courier named Roadkill. We get a glimpse of their kind of lingo. Maxi the clink. Yeah. Roadkill's impressed that she's in the clink. She says that she's about to get out, but asks that he stop by to lend a hand with that. Also, Roadkill's her lame boyfriend. She's like, you think you swing by and give me a hand? He's like, what do you mean? And she's just like, man, you know, give me a hand. You're my boyfriend. Yeah, like if Pops are supposed to come and around and help us me out, is it everyone supposed to know this stuff? Don't parents teach your kids anything anymore? Uh, he won't come and help her because he's on his. He says, "I'm on my way to Bernie with a super ultra, as in super Bern- super or San Bernardino, as in super high ultra priority delivery, as in you're out of luck." Thanks for nothing. Yeah. Uh, so she only one other person she can call. This one owes her one, but he might be a bit of a spaz hero protagonist yeah, who is basically gone card. to Safeway. Yeah, so the the kind of Walmart-esque store is called Buy and Fly, right? Like that's yeah, that's where yeah. people go to now. And so she she gives him a call and it's like, hey, I need need you to uh help me out. And he's like, Oh, where are you at? And she's like, I'm at the clink. And he's like, I can get there in 10 minutes. And he says, Okay, the three-ring binder for clink franchises states that the manager is supposed to check on the detainee half an hour after admission. So he knows some shit. How do you know this stuff? He says, use your imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so she, he tells her to wait the 30 minutes until the manager checks on her and then make her move five minutes after that so eventually the manager pokes his head in he's clearly tempted to do something icky having been attracted to the little bit of young flesh he saw earlier but he lingers pondering it and then she's from the book she says make up your fucking mind it works the fresh burst of culture shock chat or rattle shock rattles the jeek out of his ethical conundrum he gives yt a disapproving glower she after all forced him to be attracted to her forced him to get horny made his head swim she didn't have to get arrested did she and so on top of everything else he's angry of her as if he has a right to be this is the gender that invented the polio vaccine she asked herself <laughs> yeah and it is i mean the way it's written from yt's perspective she's very kind of confident and assured and kind of she's she's rarely fearful i guess like in her own kind of internal monologue but this is potentially like a pretty scary situation you know it's like she got locked up the cop the meta cops left and now this guy's coming back just to look at her like he's been tempted and he's thinking Mm -hmm. about trying something yeah so he leaves she sets an alarm and starts looking around herself for an escape but apparently since she's in a basement unit there's an emergency exit Yes. I like how she um she undoes her handcuffs and then with like one of her little like tools that she has on her coverall and then she clamps it back onto her wrist because she likes the look of it. That's the kind of thing her mom used to do back when she was a punk, she says. But like both both rings on yeah. one wrist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a bracelet. Um uh, her alarm goes off, she kicks her way out of the emergency exit, but it's the outside is full of jeeks. Um yeah, jeeks again, short for Tajikistan, meaning an immigrant from there. Um it's a parking lot full of jeeks. But presumably these are taxi drivers who speak taxilinga? Yeah, I think there's, it's like some sort of weird convention out there or something. There's like a whole bunch of taxi drivers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Whitey's distracted by a sharp hissy noise. Um, her guys glance back at Hero because he's shown up and she sees that he has withdrawn a three-foot curved sword from a scabbard, which she did not notice before. He's dropped into a squat. The blade of the sword glitters painfully under the killer's uh, security lights of the bind fly. And she thinks, how sweet. And almost undoubtedly, most of them have guns. So why is this guy trying, trying to bother them with a sword? This is just who Hero is. He shows up, gets confronted by a bunch of taxi drivers, and pulls out a sword, even though they all have guns. And she remembers that the business card that he handed her said that he was the greatest sword fighter in the world. 
The manager comes after YT, grabs her by the arm, and she hits him with her liquid knuckles. Which is like mace, I think. Okay. Basically. She steals an empty taxi and like drives around to pick up Hero. Uh, takes off onto the freeway, but now they're being chased by a half dozen other taxis. Uh, she wants to pull into a mafia. I love this. The mafia franchulet. Mm-hmm. There, there's like a, a, a like mention a consulate here. franchise yeah. um she can't take him to new south africa because he's black and she can't go to metazania because she's a cock as she describes herself c-a-u-c yeah yeah uh so here suggests mr lee's greater hong kong just a half mile ahead she wonders if that's possible with all of his swords and he mentions that he's a citizen which i i guess uh, you can get if you fit certain ethnic things you could get multiple citizenships Pres- presumably actually i'm i mean it it like what are the rules like there's no rules in this place so yeah probably i mean unless one uh franchise nation has a rule that you can only be a member of their nation and not somebody else's yeah well because I, like I don't know triple citizenship is the storage facility like within a certain french franchise lit I mean, it's a franchise, but I don't know if it would count as like a nation or whatever. It's, you know, they're all just like these private enterprises, I guess. I mean, a lot of the book is just playing fast and loose with its own world and you just mm-hmm. have to kind of enjoy it. So one of the pursuing taxis rear ends them. She pulls into Mr. Lee's at 75 miles per hour, too fast to scan them. So the SCD, severe tire damage device, fucks up their tires. They skid onto a lawn. I like, well, they yeah. skid onto a lawn grid, which doubles as carbon dioxide eating turf in impervious parking lot. Which is yeah. an interesting uh, another you know piece of the world here that they have these weird long grid things. Yeah, get out of the car to get scanned, and a robot voice welcomes Hero back and his guest YT. Uh, <laughs> Miss YT. Which, yeah, the Jeeks park their cars and get out. <laughs> which I wonder if like did it actually say that or is this because this is YT's um, you know her perspective is she like self editing that or not? I'm, I'm trying to remember if we ever get her name. I'm not sure if we do. We might. Maybe we do in the Diamond Age. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Jeeks park their cars and get out their guns to start the approach from the book. Four more Jeeks run up to join them. YT counts two more revolvers and a pump shotgun. Any more of these guys, they'll be able to form a government. <laughs> uh, so you get a little description of the long grids. Hong Kong franchulates are famous for their long grids. Whoever heard of a lawn you could park on or, and for their antennas? Uh, they all look like NASA research facilities with their antennas. Some of them are satellite uplinks point at the sky, but some of them, tiny antennas, point at the ground at the long grid. YT does not really get this, but these small antennae are millimeter wave radio transceivers. Like any other radar, they are good at picking up metallic objects. Unlike the radar in the air traffic control center, they can res fine details. The res of a system is only as fine as the wavelength. Since the wavelength of this radar is about a millimeter, I can see the fillings in your teeth, the grommets in your converse high tops, the rivets in your Levi's, can calculate the value of your pocket change seeing guns is not a problem this thing can even tell if the guns are loaded and with what sort of ammunition this is an important function because guns are illegal in mr gridley's greater hong kong mm-hmm. and that's how the chapter ends there so they've made it to mr lee's franchlet here and these guys the the uh, taxi guys have followed them in and they've drawn guns but guns are illegal in mr lee's greater hong kong so we're about to see what happens when somebody violates this franchlet's uh, rules here I'm pretty sure it involves robots. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that is the end of chapter 10. We're definitely learning a lot. A lot of these chapters, uh, other than the YT stuff, was going into the backstory of Hero and mm-hmm. Juanita and David and kind of how they're all connected and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And how their world works. A lot, a lot of table mm-hmm. setting. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got, a, we got a story here. Yeah. And so I suppose we'll do uh, 11 to 15. For the next sounds, episode, sounds about right. Do we get the big episode, the big, the big chapter in that that run? Which you mean the one where it's just like him talking to the librarian forever? Yeah, I don't think that's still like probably like ten or fifteen chapters later. No, I don't think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's this book is famous for like a section where it's just like hero talking to a robot Damon about like history and and like language it's just like it's just this massive info dump where it's like the book kind of stops in his tracks for a while to like it's fucking fascinating it's i mean i guess it depends on the type of reader you are some people i'm sure would read and just be like what the fuck this is so boring i found it very interesting myself yeah i i was fucking enamored with it um i'm very curious because it may have to be an episode of its own we'll see when Uh, we get there yeah i have been reading ahead a little bit just to have an idea of what's uh, coming you know so 
I'm sure as I read ahead and get to that part, I'll, I'll note it if we need to like section it off for its own episode. Cool. Cool. All right, folks. All right. Um, yeah. If you want to send us feedback, it's going to be uh, NSBC at headcanon.org. And uh, we'll catch you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.